0: Welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squad's 35, continuing our discussion of Nagarjuna's Root Verses of the Middle Way. I am your host, Dharmakirti, joined, as always, by the squad of Aura and uh, Nyamnaya Mindset, if y'all want to say hi. Hello. Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, Storm can't be here with us today, but we look forward to his contributions, um, hopefully in you know know, soon (laughs) but uh as for the uh, topic today we are as i mentioned before continuing our reading of mm, certainly one of the most foundational arguably the most foundational text of mahayana buddhist philosophy uh last week we discussed a little bit about Buddhist texts, So if this is your first episode, um obviously you can also read uh check out our previous episodes on this same text. But if you're not familiar or you missed it, you may want to check out actually our um our, our last episode on Buddhist text which will help maybe to explain a little bit um just how the Buddhist text tradition works and where this text fits in the kind of, I guess, T-L-D-R on that is that this text, this particular text, the Mulabhyamaka or, or Root Verses of the Middle Way is um, kind of a synthesis or explanation or in a certain sense, a kind of commentary on the perfection of wisdom literature, which is the earliest Mah- Mahayana literature, the earliest Mahayana sutras. Um, so the when the Mahayana was getting formulated that was sort of concurrent with the first appearance of these texts that were calling themselves people say the perfection of wisdom. I've been sort of playing around. I kind of like Gnosis better than wisdom, you know, thinking about it more. I don't know. It depends on, you know, what your um, do you have any thoughts on that? Ora, or, or, uh, or Yamnia, do you have preference as far as that's concerned?
1: I like, I like that Gnosis, but I actually hadn't really given it much thought before, but I sure uh, in- Instinctually, I like the that way of phrasing
2: it. It's it. There is definitely something to be said about that. I'm not sure if I, I mean, but like Aura uh, said, I haven't really given it much thought either. Yeah,
0: I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's a translation issue. It's not necessarily. It's just. It's just sort of like thinking about what. Because wisdom, at a certain level, is like okay. Well, what is that? And it's not to say that it isn't wisdom. It's just. Uh, I don't know anyway it doesn't it doesn't really matter um but yeah so so that's what this text is and we have uh done a lot of investigation which one of the reasons why um you know we're reading through this text is because it gives us an opportunity to talk about his various topics because basically nagarjan is going one by one through all the kind of different foundational topics of buddhist philosophy and and of um you know buddhism and uh somebody's up from his nap (laughs) and uh so uh and so then it gives us us a chance to kind of go through and, and talk about all those different all those different things. So, one thing I've really been been please, enjoying yeah. about
1: this is that, um, you know, so I read this long ago, and um, going back through it with all of y'all um, has been very eye opening for me because I never really looked that closely at it before, and you know I, now we're looking very closely chapter by chapter. And what the coolest one of the coolest things about it is that, I you can kind of imagine the a The first chapter, the second chapter—you can think of him almost like a runner out of the gates. Like he—he—he starts running, and but he doesn't really get up to full speed. The runner doesn't get up to full speed until you know forty yards into his run or whatever his sprint. And at the towards the end, now we're we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning now of this book. He's setting up these topics and knocking them down that are like these really key, like you know, at the beginning is like well. What is, you know, what is the thing and what is the, the notion of going and stuff? And it all relates to Buddhism, but he's kind of laying groundwork a little bit. He's getting up to speed. And then, like, this chapter is basically an analysis of karma, which is the the central, one of the most central teachings of Buddhism. And the next one's on self versus no self. And, you know, towards the end, the last couple of chapters, he talks about the Four Noble Truths. And he talks about, um, and you know, the next one after 18 is 19 is... An analysis of time so like towards the end each chapter he's taking on these huge topics and blasting right through them so it's it's a sound very nerdy but it's it's kind of exhilarating you know to see this see somebody's you know he's got such a crystalline mind and the early chapters are are very well and good and i I quite like them but now you can really see him like in his full at a full gallop
2: am i making sense it uh, You do, but I mean, the way I, it, it seems to me almost like what he's doing is he's moving from like the very abstract to much more concrete and precise examples. So, whereas he might start with like a thing or going uh, or time, and in these later chapters, he's talking about very precise things like the self or karma. And so in some ways, it's actually easier to get a hold of it because he's using the same kind of arguments that he, he kind of perfects in the earlier t- uh, chapters. But then he's using them against these very precise things. and Maybe he's not like a runner. Maybe he's like a missile, right? Because a missile needs yes. to get going, you know, and everything. And then it hones in on his target and boom, you know. So, And I, I think with the karma, it's really interesting because um, it is, I mean, it, do, it does seem like this is something that's very easy to attach to a very, like a very, attached to it is like karma. It's like very real. Yeah. Um, but as, uh, during one of the dis- a discussion I was having with someone else a while back, one of the criticisms they had of Jainism specifically was that they have a very materialistic view of karma, almost. And so this is actually a, just a, kind of an interesting... Um, has kind of an interesting connection to that, I think. Going after this um, karma specifically as being uh, not really... Uh, Just kind of attacking like this very realistic, like materialistic notion of it that you see there.
1: Yeah, DK, I cut you off. Were you were you about to say something deeply profound about this
0: setup? No. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. No. uh, So, I think that with that we could just dive in. I mean, the the I think you're right though that that this is a the, people don't often necessarily pay attention to the rhetorical structure of texts like this. There is an, always an internal logic. It may not be our kind of internal logic. It may not be immediately obvious, but, but um, there, there's always a kind of logic at work, and it's important to keep that in mind.
1: Well, I have a number of things that I want to say about karma. And uh, for our listeners, we before we started recording here, I was commenting to YM and DK that um, we haven't really directly addressed the subject of karma in our show. It comes up in basically every episode because um, not only is it a central teaching of Buddhism, but it's, uh, you know, I believe it can be shown that it's a fundamental... Uh, <laughs> Feature of reality. I mean, that's why the Buddha teaches it, not because like, hey, here's an interesting idea that might be useful. It's like, no, this is actually how the world works. Um, so even people, you know, and this is going to sound very dogmatic of me, but you know, I, as a Buddhist, I actually believe that people who aren't Buddhists are also living by the laws of karma. They just don't, you know, they're not thinking about it, or not realizing it. Um, and so it's this super important, super key, central topic. Um, however, you know, uh, in the verses of chapter, what is it, seventeen here um uh nagarjuna is addressing some very specific ideas about it and and also doing his sort of usual trick of breaking apart the abhidharma sort of standard views of what how to interpret what the buddha taught and and he's sort of taking it apart and showing how there's emptiness underlying this concept and that concept um and so it's getting a little bit outside the purview of the book of the verses themselves to start talking about karma in general. Um, Nevertheless, I think, you know, now's our opportunity to sort of dive into it. But I guess, um, to my co-hosts here, I'm not sure what to do first, to talk about karma in general first, or to address, you know, the actual text first. Uh, So I'm open to doing doing it either way.
2: I think karma, uh, like addressing karma in general first, would probably be helpful just to get an introduction to the text later. Sure. Why not? Well,
1: I'll say a couple things and this is, I, I'm not, you know, I guess I say this too much, but I, you know, I'm not a scholar of these things and, um, I'm not an enlightened master either. So I, you know, I always hesitate to start talking out of school. Nevertheless, I did agree to be, uh, to host and be on a podcast about Buddhism addressing karma. So if I don't have something to say, uh, there's no reason to be here. I do have something to say. um, We'll say it, god damn un- it. Yeah, go on. God sorry. damn it, say <laughs> it. Stop. Enough enough preamble, Aura. Um so the first thing to understand, this is very basic, is that karma is not the law of karma is not a law of punishment and reward. I think this is probably most of our listeners already get that, but let let's be very explicit about it. There's not some force out there like tallying up how many good boy points you got um, and re- rewarding you attendees at the end of the day for, you know, for how many boxes you've checked or something. It It's not, and you don't get punished for bad karma in the sense of like, you were a bad boy, you need to learn a lesson. Here's some here's some bad experiences uh, to punish you for being a naughty boy. You know, like it, that's not what it is. And it's simply the way things are, right? One way to look at the law of karma is that it's simply, it's, it's almost like Newton's laws. Um, it's just a fact that you, it sounds kind of cheesy or whatever, but you, you get out what you put in and, um, it's, it's an immutable law of at least the samsaric existence, you know, everyday normal existence. Um, and you can either live in ignorance of this law or, or start coming up with reasons why it's not true or something. Um, or you can, you can understand it and conform with it and and improve your situation as a result. And I know that sounds like maybe I'm dodging dodging the intellectual question or something like well you do, this is just the way it is so shut up and take it I'm not going to explain it. Um but I guess I would just say that like so much in Buddhism it, the the question dodging isn't <laughs> it, it's like an a, an above and beyond style of question dodging because instead of saying well prove this to me and then coming up with the proof and and by the way, there there are good proofs for this that, that I, somebody more erudite than myself could come up with. But the the invitation, at least by many masters I've heard, and I think in in the teachings of the Buddha himself, is to just sit down and observe it and see whether or not it's true. And it is very, very, very much true. And, One of the ways in which karma can be seen in your own life, um, you don't have to wait for your your future lives or anything like that, and you don't need to get uh, total enlightenment into how your past lives were or anything. You can just see it in your day to day. But take the example of your state of mind when you're feeling hostile to other people. You're putting out hostile energy um, towards other people and and maybe resentment or I don't like this guy for that reason, and, and you're dwelling on it and you're suffering as a result and you're putting out bad energy to other people. And you might treat Another person in a bad way because of your feeling of hostility towards that person, and in the future somebody's going to do something to you uh, that you're going to interpret and feel as hostile. And in other words, you're getting hostile energy back from the world, and and it hurts, and it and it makes you more angry, or it makes you feel rejected, or or, or whatever those feelings are, and it's all negative and a bad stream of karma. But now imagine that you were putting out good energy and love and goodwill towards other people. And then that second person came along and gave you quote unquote hostile energy. It would fl- go right off your back like water off off a duck's back. It would just roll right off of you. You wouldn't even interpret it as hostile. You might you might have a loving feeling towards that person. Not not in the sort of, you know, sickly sweet kind of way, but a genuine feeling of like uh, you know, compassion and happiness and everything. And so that that second person's actions could be exactly the same in the first case and the second case. But in the first case, you interpret it as negative and hateful and everything because of your past karma of putting out negativity and hatred. In the second case, because you started with love and goodwill and and things like that, you don't actually receive a wound from that second person's um, host, quote unquote hostile feelings. So that's. It sounds like oh, it's just a trick of the mind or something, and and there are other ways in which karma manifests. You know, on the physical plane, you know, with, you know, disease or accidents and things like that. But, you know, 95% of our life is, is, is mental. It's, it's how we're interpreting the things that are happening to us. And most of the time we're not getting hit by a car or stricken with a horrible disease or something. We're just living our day to day and you, it's totally up to you. It's up to me every day. uh, What kind of karma I want to put out and, and I get back what I, what I, what I put out. And it sounds so simplistic that it's almost silly sounding, except for that we tend not to live this way. It's, it's one of those those basic truths that's easily observable um, and, and and you can actually change <laughs> the, the karma that you're creating and, and therefore the karma that you're receiving. But only if you're humble enough to sit down and say and, and admit that this is true and, and that you are creating these things and that it's up to you to decide what you want to get back. Um, there's much more to karma than that, but that is sort of the easiest way I can suggest to people to, to prove it to themselves in their own lives.
2: In, the way I like to think about karma and why it makes so much sense to me is it, if, you if you look at the way that the world tends to work, when you exert a certain amount of force on an object, that object is going to move in sort of proportion with the amount of force you're exerting upon it. So... If we assume, among all the systems of moral realism, and I guess maybe it's not exactly precise to say karma is... Ex- I mean, like, if we're really autistic about it, maybe it's not a precisely moral, moral realism, but of all those systems, why wouldn't it work like this? Why wouldn't it work in the same way we observe the universe actually works? Why should we then try to reduce it to some kind of, like, judicial system view of morality? Where, where would that come from? And that's I, kind of like why I think it makes so much
0: sense. The key point is that karma, the word, literally just means like action or doing or thing that is done, essentially. So, and, and it's, it's just an obvious thing that actions, which is to say causes, have effects. When there's an action, when there's a thing that happens... That thing that happens makes other things happen that's just just ext- i mean it's it sort of i mean you know putting it on those terms make maybe makes it seem too simple but um uh, you know what do you what do you want to say that's just how it is and and so the key point is when we're talking so this isn't this chapter is an analysis of karma literally a- action and fruit but action is you know if you if you watching the video, or but for those uh, who, are, who are seeing the stream or, or seeing a replay on YouTube, um, and and for those of you who are just listening, you know the the editors, the translators introduce this chapter by saying this chapter examines the relation between an action, karma, and its consequence or fruit, pala, the relation specified, but why by what are now commonly called the laws of karma. Um, so. When you are thinking, like mental activity is a, is a kind of activity, right? So when, when you are using your mind, I mean even if you I, I, even if you want to be kind of reductionist physicalist about it, which is that's a stupid position and there's you know nothing to you want to say like the mind is the brain or something, like that's just dumb. but okay, fine, the mind is the brain. It nevertheless remains the case that when you think when when your brain is active that the that, that action leads to certain effects now some of those effects are you know immediate and obvious uh, others may be less so but the principle is not in question the principle that the way that you use your mind using your mind thinking about something or not you know whatever it is uh the the first the first verse here, which is really kind of getting at the heart of it, in a sense, is, uh, you know, in Arjuna says, self-control, being thoughtful of others and friendliness, these states of mind are meritorious and the seeds of fruit both hereafter and here. Meaning that if we behave if, with self-control, if we are thoughtful and kind, um, that those are good, wholesome, kushala states of mind and that they will lead to good results yeah now that from a certain kind of a perspective you want to be a sort of extreme skeptic about it maybe you don't necessarily accept that at face value and that, and that's fine you, you know i mean i think this is the kind of thing that's open to a certain amount of experimentation um in the sense that you know try and see how it goes but um but the point is that what we're what we're investigating here is the fact that it's our intentions. As as uh, in the second verse, he says, "Action was said by the supreme sage, in other words, the Buddha, to be volition, and what is brought about by volition." He has proclaimed there to be many distinct varieties of action, and and this is really key because from a kind of classical Buddhist perspective, we talked a little bit last time in our discussion of Buddhist texts about the Abhidharma. Um, in in from from the for the Abhidharma kind of school or way of looking at it action is intention are are what we what we are sort of um orienting our minds towards that is action. that is the heart of it there and, and 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 it's important to understand also from a um we'll get into this a little bit maybe later on in the chapter but you know buddhism is always like a little bit ambivalent about um what is the relationship between mind and matter Like, from a, there's always, on the one hand, a certain kind of common sense perspective. It's like, well, you know, there's mind and there's matter. And, you know, that sort of matches our kind of ordinary everyday experience. Like, most people are not extremely autistic, Daniel Dennett type, you know, like, there's all the brains and chemicals, everything. Like, that's obviously retarded. Most people understand that there are minds in addition to matter. At the least, in addition to matter, um, but
1: you're right that it's much more ambivalent in Buddhism and in Indic religions in general, and I would say also East Asian religions in general. It, it's it's almost um, a particular particularity of the West of the European tradition to even have this. Worry about the mind-body, you know, the Cartesian yeah. dualism and stuff well, is is sort of a, a heritage that really only one yeah it's really major only world in, philosophical, and, and not philosophical not even tradition has a the, problem with,
0: and not even in every European tradition, it's is really Correct. just this one kind of strand of it has been dominant for a few hundred years. Yeah, that's but, the thing
1: is all of us on this stream and listening to it and everything I grew up saturated right. in, in the mind-body dualism. Whether you're a, a hardcore Christian or you're a, you're, a, you're a fedora-tier atheist or whatever you are, you, it's so hard to completely divorce your mind from this, the idea that the body is one thing and the mind is something else. But that there's no reason that that should be a, a given. You know, I mean, maybe there are some reasons according to Descartes or something, yeah, but right. I mean, we don't have to. We accept. don't accept.
0: Yeah. Right. And it certainly is Buddhist. We don't accept that. But, but the, the point I wanted to make just was that when we're talking about this thing about like you, you mental activity leads to a certain result and activity as such is mental. It is volitional. Like that's the volition that constitutes activity kind of in general, um, that implies a certain kind of idealistic framework, meaning that, like, in a sense, everything is mind, that is most explicit in especially the Yogacara school of M- M- Mahayana philosophy. But, like, will as we'll, we'll see here, you know, Nagarjuna talks in a certain way that's kind of, I mean, it, it's not exclusive to Yogacara. He's building on, you know, Yogacara itself is building on Abhidharma and all these previous, you know, it, it came about, it started about a thousand years after the buddha i mean there's a lot of stuff that goes into it but the point is that um you know it, it's it's a kind of common thing in a lot of these mahayana sutras and in general to say for the buddha to say you know well everything that at least all phenomena are mine now everything that appears is mine now what does that mean whether that means that there actually isn't anything other than like mental stuff that you know that's maybe potentially theoretically a a separate question but it's important to understand that like so much of buddhism especially well no, i wouldn't even say especially mahayana mahayana theravada all the way back every level buddhism is fundamentally concerned with the mind more than any other single thing and in particular with being aware of what it is that our minds are doing at any particular moment and seeing what is the relationship between what our minds are doing or have done and what it is that we are experiencing or how it is that we are experiencing it. That's really the key point. And that's in a sense what this is about because this chapter, I mean, because the sort of framework here is um, to, um, yeah, well, actually it's just, it's just to say, so in the third, he, he lays out in the first five, five verses here, it's kind of a, um, a a the standard model, so to speak of, um, of karma he says uh of of these that which is called volition is known as mental action and that which is called what is brought about by volition is bodily and verbal action so notice like the volition is the mental action and then you can you can move your body or you can say something you know and in writing so to speak would be considered a kind of speech in a way in, in this tradition but the point is that you know we have we have bodily movements and we have kind of intentional speech acts but these all go back to what our mind intends the root of all of this is what are we what do we what is our volition what is our intention um where what are in what way are our minds oriented and that's really the heart of it um and so then he goes through speech gesture what is known as the unmanifest unrestrained blah 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 but the point is that all of this comes back to our our minds um or I feel like I cu- I just wanted to finish that point. I feel like I cut you off. No, this. no, so you, you would... did not cut me
1: off at all. In fact, just to piggyback on what you said, um, in in we we've mentioned it before in the show that 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 also when we say mind in the Buddhist context, it's it might properly be translated as heart mind or mind heart um, because these are considered sort of um, you know the citta is is both of these things together. Um, so it's it's another um, sort of cultural idea that Westerners have this split. There's your, your mind and we sort of think of that as sort of your rational, analytical uh, interior, interiority. And then your emotions or your heart is something that's that's, uh, you know, if it's your emotions, it's your felt, your felt experience, your interiority that's pre-rational or super rational or sub rational, depending on how you want to look at it. And the, the term mind, when we're talking about it here, um, really encompasses all of the above. So that that's why, you know, when we think about intentionality, when we talk about intentionality or volition behind one's actions, whether they're bodily or they're verbal or, or whatever, um, it, it can kind of sound like you're saying, oh, I have to like, you know, be one of those like self-improvement people that's like writing down their goals every morning and then uh, reviewing them at night not that there's anything wrong with that that that, that can be a very good practice but it, it doesn't your volition does not have to be this kind of like I shall now be a dick and and then proceed to being a dick or I shall now be a nice guy and proceed to be a nice guy um, it can also it happens on a very very subtle level and in fact part of the key part of the teaching of the Buddha and and the the one of the central reasons behind the meditation in general is is to be able to look at your mind and to see that you know on some level you are actually saying I shall now be a dick and then you proceed to be a dick or whatever um although usually in in lived day-to-day experience it happens so quick and it's so subtle and it seems so you know it seems to sort of happen before you choose it to happen uh the teaching of the buddha is that you we are all all of us capable of making those choices deliberately um but it doesn't mean that you're just like oh i'm going to get super rational about it i'm going to get super analytical yes you use your rational side and your analytical side to help you in this process uh but it's it's not a it's not like the brain has to take over from the heart they they work together and in, in some senses in the buddhist context they're the same thing well
2: you i mean it would I would almost think it would be correct to say not only does it exist in in, in conjunction with the heart, but also with con, in conjunction with whatever is being conceived of or whatever is being perceived or some other object of uh, consciousness. So uh, when we think of it like that, I mean, a lot of that volition would come as a result of, of, of desiring a particular thing or, or grasping.
1: Uh, can you rephrase that? Uh, the, the first part of what you said, I, I didn't quite catch it.
2: Basically, like, you're, you know, you, the mind is seen as, as only existing in relation with, it exists together with the heart, so the mind-heart. But, I mean, it also would be correct to say that the mind exists in conjunction or independence of, like, some object that is perceiving, like the... Uh, oh, um, yeah. So, and in, in that's, I mean, it would be correct to say that as well, wouldn't it? I think so. I mean, that's a
1: very, it sounds like a very Mahayana idea that I... That's, it sounds also correct to me, by the way, even though I don't, I self-identify as a Mahayana. But I mean, I, I don't know. Um, yes, I mean, there, there's, well, I don't even want to try to rephrase it. But I think I know what you're saying, and I, I think I agree.
2: Yeah, and, and so a lot of the volition then, I mean, when we talk about, when we talk about the volition, I mean, it sometimes is going to be maybe a little bit um it won't be like the desire to be a, their direct desire. of I just want to be a dick, for instance, is not going to be there. But because there's like a grasping towards a particular thing, like I want this. And so therefore, I'm willing to be a dick in order to get it. It kind of is it kind of right. That would exist together with it. Right. And I, you know, I've said this before as well, but it's one of the
1: most um, life altering revelations I, I've ever had in my life in any context, Buddhist or, or not Buddhist, is really just happened in the last couple of years for me Um, and I'm still learning to sort of internalize it but it's the realization that even my bad emotions um are done because I want because I some part of me thinks that it's going to make me happy to feel that way that it that it's it it is clinging it is desire it's it's desire now and I, I think Storm was on the call when I said it, and we I was t- we were talking about anger. Maybe it was that episode. I, I can't remember actually, but I was saying you know some some part of you likes feeling angry, and he's like, oh yeah, it feels so good. And I think that's a common one. People can acknowledge that like yeah they they like they like getting fired up and angry over stuff. Um, and and so that's kind of an easy hurdle to clear. But I I went on to say, and I'll repeat it now, even the worst kinds of emotions that are way less fun than anger, like depression, or um, self-loathing, or, um, you know, this really awful feeling, you know, um, dread of the future, you know, um, just blackpilling in general, all these kinds (laughs) of feelings, those are also chosen. And it you know, it can be really unhelpful to tell people that sometimes when they're in the middle of those emotions that, by the way, you're choosing to feel this shitty, you know, like people who are really despairing, who, who hate themselves or who feel really lost and really alone or, or whatever. Loneliness is another one. Loneliness is such an awful feeling when you really are in the throes of it and you feel rejected by the world. You feel unloved and alone um even in the you know you might even be in the presence of your own quote unquote loved ones and you feel so alone um it's an awful feeling and we've all felt it you know in our lives at some point or another and some people um you know right now are are in the middle of it and can't get out from it and if you say to that person well you're choosing to feel that way that can be very unhelpful right because they it doesn't feel like a choice so, you know, they're, they're, in, in Buddhism, there's the idea of, you know, skillful means, skillful teaching, upaya, right? Um, so maybe the Buddha himself would, would not come out and say, you know, you're actually choosing to feel that way. <laughs> um,
2: <I laughs> however, the it is—go is really, ahead, go ahead. I, I mean, the thing is, I, I agree with you that there, there, there is that choice to feel lonely on a certain level, but the question is— my view is it the choice is almost more implicit, like someone, instead of doing something difficult, like going out and talking to actual people, they would just rather, you know, sit around and play video games and jerk off to porn all day. And so then why am I lonely? I Well, you're choosing to be lonely because you're choosing to do that instead of this more difficult thing.
1: Yes, that, yes, there is that. Absolutely. And and that's another, you know, manifestation of karma, of course, by the way, is, is that you're if you choose certain actions, you're going to get certain results. But I was... I'm talking about on an even more subtle level that, that, uh, or I'll fr- the, the, with the revelation that was so helpful for me and that has been so life transformative for myself personally, is is not focusing on like oh my negative emotions I'm I'm choosing them, it's the really happy sunny beautiful flip side of that exact same coin which is, I can choose other feelings, and I can cultivate other feel- I don't have to feel that way <laughs> um and it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of sitting it takes a lot of looking you know looking with your sitting with your eyes closed alone in quiet and in the, you know the darkness or the in low light or whatever and it it's fucking sucks sometimes it's dark right but on the other side of that that sort of dark night of the soul is this Choice that you're like, wow! I when I have those feelings, it's just, it's just this kind of it's like a a tape recorder that's playing again and again and again, and you're like, actually, I can hit stop, and this is you know I'm I'm talking in sort of like self-helpy kind of terms, and it sounds kind of cheesy or whatever, but. Since honestly, sincerely for our listeners, this is actually what the Buddha like explicitly was teaching. He, he's he's like, you don't have to, you, you know these these things that you're. It's clinging. It's you're clinging to these. You, you have a sense of self that I am a depressed, a lonely person, or or whatever these feel an angry person, or or whatever these things are, a lustful person. Um, and if I stop feeling anger or lust or loneliness or something, then I am no longer there. But that is a delusion. That's not true at all. Uh, you can let those things go, and 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 you, you. Like I was saying on a previous episode, you become more yourself, not less yourself. Now, of course, you start talking about becoming yourself and everything. This is very problematic, because Buddhism <laughs> 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 Buddhism has the the doctrine of of no self. But um, uh, on a sort of operational, day to day, mundane level, um, before reaching total enlightenment, uh, on the path to. Reaching total enlightenment, you can find this space between yourself and your own emotions, and deliberately start choosing, choosing better ones. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing inauthentic about it. And in fact, it's 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 the root of real authenticity. But I have to cut myself off because I could really keep rambling like this. Uh, like no, a it's Robbins not rambling, and it's a great
0: it's a great um, it's a great topic. Maybe we can come back at some point. I mean, is, I'm sure there's going to be another opportunity. We should get to back to space. the text, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not unrelated. Obviously, this is all um, the, the question, the kind of animating question in the text is how do we account for the fact that our, the results of our actions are not always immediately evident? Now, some, I mean, you know, in a kind of classical Buddhist example, this is, this is the kind of thing where like if to put a kind of negative spin on it um you know i always these days when i see something like um uh like this uh airplane that was shot down in uh iran right like 100 people oftentimes like whole families just like gone in an instant right terrible tragedy okay um without Again, very importantly, like Aura very correctly noted, without moralizing about it, without seeing it as some kind of like, you know, this is just a kind of neutral principle of um, cause and effect. You know, it's not hard for me, at least, to imagine, um, you know, at some point in the Yamnaya years, uh, 20,000 or whatever years ago, uh, one of these people just fucking murdered a whole family. In fact, each one of them, just fucking murdered a whole family, right? And maybe they didn't experience that until 20,000 years later. <sighs> you know, they and their family are now boom gone in an instant. Um that's uh that's maybe sounds unfair. I remember when I was like first encountering this stuff, I was like that doesn't that's not fair. I'm like okay, well in a certain sense, it's the most fair thing it is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the point is it's it's not, again, no part of this. I mean, we've said this before. We're going to say it again. No part of this is about victim blaming. It's
1: just well, – I think
2: – Yes, and actually please. I think that's –
0: oh, Go ahead. <laughs> no, both of you.
1: Please just Let me just say let – me, let me, uh, uh, I think the objection people have um, is not so much that it's not fair or whatever because you can explain how it is fair. It's that I think the objection is like, well, that's awfully convenient of you to have that uh that explanation yeah sure there, yeah
0: yeah yeah for sure and i mean i guess at a certain level it is but like the point is first of all only fully enlightened buddhas know all of the reasons why things happen like you have to have that level in order to have that kind of a level of fine grained knowledge you have to have completely perfect gnosis or whatever um
2: and but, yeah beyond sorry go go on you know actually i mean i would say that it isn't completely wrong to say that there is sort of a a kind of element of unfairness there and I think that that is one thing that a lot I mean one of the objections I hear to people talking about karma is that it can encourage people to be um, callous because it's almost like people are getting exactly what they deserve and you know I mean when you think of it like that it's it actually should be a cause for compassion It's more than anything else you should be when you see people in a bad situation you should actually feel compassion for them because there is possibly that certain element of, well, that doesn't seem fair to it. That's just kind of my thought on it.
1: Um, yes, I agree. I think maybe DK had to step step
0: away just for a second. Um, oh, sorry. I thought I was muted. I didn't realize that I was. Uh, no, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, was, you, you like, must be muted. <laughs> uh, no, what I was saying is um, there are also things you can do. Um, yourself a meditation in the in the tibetan tradition in particular is um basically geared towards purifying your past negative actions and you know it's not like it's actually a confession practice very similar to confession in the christian tradition and the idea is like you can you feel sincere remorse and it's that sincere remorse that kind of powers the thing but um it, through the power of sincere remorse and a, and a sincere conviction to not do the same thing again, you can actually reduce or even eliminate the neg- like the consequences of prior negative actions, um, at least to some extent. Um, so yeah I mean it's not it's not hopeless by any stretch it's just It's just important to understand that you know we experience what we experience is the result of our own prior ac- actions, in- including most particularly our own prior mental actions, our own prior volition. Um, and this also means to kind of like keep on, you know, piling on the, uh, the uh, side tracks, but whatever, is that what we need to be most concerned with is is not so much necessarily changing our bo- you could force your body behavior to change you can force. you know there's all kind of you know sheer power of will and that can be even good i'm not saying that you shouldn't do that but the key point isn't so much forcing ourselves to behave a certain way or forcing things in a certain direction or 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 you know be it, it, the key point is to work on our intentions to sort of work on purifying our intentions so that what it is that we want what it is that we're oriented towards is wholesome and good and leads to a long-term benefit for ourselves and others. That's really the key point um, more than anything else. that's all I, I I am nodding,
1: nodding vigorously as, (laughs) as you speak. That is so true. So exactly true. And it is something I think that gets forgotten a lot. I will say from, from my own perspective, I I often forget that that is really, that's what we're doing. And you know, you got to remind yourself again and again with this um, because the thing is, it really works. It's, I sometimes view it as um, a lesson in in time preference, in extending your uh, your ability to uh, to have uh, uh, what is it, long time preference, right? Um, I uh, again, I'll just speak for myself. I I like my pers- pers- personality is. I'm loquacious and um, I, I'm a fast reader and I, I pick things up quickly. So in that sense, you might say that like I have a a, a, func- a good functional intelligence. You know, I'm a, a, a smart person. Uh-huh. But uh, I have like I have bad low time preference sometimes. And I uh, sometimes I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what I do because, you know, whatever, you know, it, who who knows. But the, the teaching of karma and the lesson you can actually learn on the meditation cushion um, is – is that it? Really does matter? And not and and again, the key for me was not thinking about oh, if I do something bad, it's going to lead to bad consequences. Although that is true, it was more just that if I do something good, um, whether that's you know an act of generosity or morality or or just you know sitting down and meditating or or you know, cleaning my room, Bucko, right? Well, anything like that, it does at you do actually reap the consequences of that. Like you do actually improve your situation that way. Um, And I think for some people that's kind of obvious and they might look down on other people who don't get that intuitively. But I know there are many, many people out there that are smart people who still sometimes think like, ah, what's the use? I'm just going to do whatever, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to be a dick or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do these drugs or, or whatever they're i'm going to go jerk off to porn or you know <laughs> whatever it is that you're you know this temporary indulgence that's going to lead to bad to, actions
0: to kind of continue that that thread not i mean the key point even there i mean i'm just this is like kind of hard advice hard learned that i don't i'm not great at following but for what it's worth you know you i'm just an internet racist whatever uh, the key point is not to act is actually not to blame yourself when you fall short when we all have bad habits and when you indulge in them Understand that you engage in your bad habit, whatever it is, um, because you are habituate, because because it is a habit, right? And so the number one thing, like before anything else, is to be, just pay attention to how you feel when you are engaged, like don't even necessarily, especially at first, really, don't try to stop yourself. Pay attention instead to how it feels pay attention to the subjective quality of your experience pay attention to how it makes you feel pay attention to the desire that you feel pay attention to where it seems to be coming from pay attention to the whole process just be aware of the whole process that more than anything else is is how you're gonna start actually like getting your kind of rational mind's ability to identify the bad habit as a bad habit more like on a Better connected to your kind of the brute raw fact that you are unable to prevent yourself from indulging that that's these things need to be equalized, and the way to do that is to pay attention, which is also related to um, the uh, uh, a question we had a great question from Joe schmo one two three so there is no karma created in actions performed without a concern for the fruits of the action. This this is like, I don't want to get too far afield. We're already kind of way far afield, which is fine. But um, in a sense, like from a certain, pres- so the way that this is often presented, this material is often presented is that, um, is in terms of what's called the three spheres of agent, uh, action, and object. And so in other words, like when you, you know, like, I mean, to be kind of, I guess, blunt about it, like, Without any sort of moral, you want to hit a ball, right? When you're playing baseball. You want to hit the um, the ball, and this actually does come up later in the chapter if we ended up if we do end up getting there. But so in that kind of a model, it's like, okay, I am playing baseball. I want to hit the ball. So I am me. I am the agent. I am the one doing the hitting of the ball. The um, the ball is the thing that I am hitting, and the hitting of it is the actual activity. And when you're doing that, like it can be very subtle, but there's t- t- tends to be a sense of like you feel like you are the one doing the action, and the action is actually happening. And th- this also relates very closely to if you uh, uh, go to an earlier episode in the, in the chapter on going, in particular. That's sort of the that's the that's what that is about. So the key point is, if you have this kind of sense, and it's not something you can just sort of <laughs> like. Just convince yourself to drop it's it, it's very deeply it's the, one of the most deeply ingrained things about our experience it's not something that you know you can come to a certain rational understanding and that's good that's in fact necessary but it's not enough you have to like practice sort of that's what meditation practice at a certain level is all about is um like really getting hands-on experience with like there is no like I, it's not that i am here meditating and meditating is a thing that is happening that 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 no longer applies anyway um so when you are genuinely acting, and, and this would be in the tradition kind of associated or identified with the realization of emptiness, like when you have a genuine, hands-on, experiential understanding of emptiness, what that means, the kind of cash value of that is that you are no longer um, acting in that way that like, and, and in a sense, yeah, it means you're performed without a concern for the fruits of the action. Like, yes, that that's a feature of it. But That, you know, I don't want to say wholeheartedly just that it's simple enough to say that, like, oh, if you just act without caring how it's going to end up, that 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 doesn't create karma. No, because someone very stupid and short sighted and ignorant can also just sort of I mean, like that could just be extremely low time preference. Right. Like, oh, I'll just fucking do this, whatever. Yeah, that's
1: that's like a a really lazy person's way out, because like it's sort of technically true, but it's like, nah, that it doesn't work like that
0: yeah exactly so 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 for that reason i don't want to say but but it is true that like if in the sense of not having this kind of in a way you could call it phenomenological sense of like i am here doing thing um that's like it's non-conceptual and it's pre-theoretical it's not something you're actively thinking about necessarily. it's 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 a it's a built-in feature of your experience that that's how my experience our experience that's how experience normally is um But if you can, through meditation, acclimatize yourself to no longer having that sense, or at least not as much of a sense, um, then, then yeah, you can act in a way, in fact, that is like, activity done without that is, you could say, and that's how it gets talked about in the tradition rhetorically, that is Buddha activity, essentially. That is like what it means to act, to have enlightened activity, is an activity that is done out of a spontaneous and 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 deep like it's it's your your intention at that level is completely perfect which means it's it's intended to maximally benefit all sentient beings without exception it's the most efficient way to lead the beings to enlightenment and it's happening spontaneously it's happening without any thought and it's happening without any like sense of like i am doing this to benefit beings it's just sort of that's how it is and it's happening every moment moment by moment but obviously that's extremely Not just difficult but like it 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 takes a lot of training to get there right which is why until we have a certain kind of amount of a certain amount of experience with these kind of things that we need to work on on perfecting our intentions in very in more conceptual ways in more like you know we need to work on refining and purifying our intentions in the way that you know i am aware that you know, I want to be kind, I want to be generous, and, and that is working on my intention. And by working in my intention that way, then eventually my intention becomes pure in a way that I don't have to force myself to sort of con- understand, like, oh, I should do, I should be generous, I should be patient, etc. It's like, then because you start becoming more habituated to behaving in a way that is kind and generous and so on, then that can manifest spontaneously. But it takes time, it takes time, it takes effort. It's not something that you can just sort of reason yourself into. This was a mistake that I made. I just, like, cards cards, whatever. Again, I'm just fucking, don't listen to me, whatever. But just, I'm saying, like, when I, I sort of, it's easy when you when you're encountering this stuff to be like, oh, I'm just going to do this. It does, it doesn't work that way. You can't like reason yourself into it. It's important to reason. It's important to use your reason to understand these things. But just having reached the conclusion by reason, that's like that's the beginning, not the end.
1: One of the things that the Thai forest Ajahn's uh, talk about a lot is in breath meditation. Uh, you're, it's like training for greater things. Um, it, you, you you sort of you're able to break things down on a very basic level and and take them in little bite-sized chunks and and learn that way because the law of karma is in operation at all times and in all places and with all kinds of actions and so these big things you know like uh a, a, the the iranian uh airplane getting shut down and and, and those kinds of grand sweeping results of, of karma um are, are are kind of baffling sometimes but in breath meditation, for example, um, and this is in many traditions, but I'll just speak about in the Thai forest tradition. Um, you, you, the idea is to sit down and just very simply start trying to make your breath feel good, like have it feel pleasant to be breathing in and breathing out. And that's very straightforward and simple, but of course, anybody who sits down and tries to do it realizes it's not very easy, especially at first. Um, and, But it is, you know, it's simple, you know, there's no one yelling at you, you don't have to like, you know, (laughs) you're not playing Frogger trying to jump across the street or anything, you're just sitting there and breathing and you're just trying to do that. And in that, you get to see how your intentions, your volition, your mind state can actually manifest uh, certain qualitative states and you sit there and just practice with the breath over and over and over again and there's many many things going on during that but uh, two very important things that are going on one on a very sort of simple and mundane level you're just making it feel good so it's nice to sit and meditate you're just sort of (laughs) the type forest guys talk about this a lot like make it feel good so that you want to do it because if it if you if it sucks if your breath it's painful or tight or annoying or whatever, you're you're not gonna your mind is not gonna wanna sit there. It's gonna wanna go fleeting off to somewhere else and think about either things that you want or things that you hate or whatever. But very importantly, the other thing that's going on is in addition to making it feel nice, you're also getting a chance to see karma in action. Your present choices will have an influence on uh your felt experience and by making a series of deliberate choices again and again and again moment by moment during the breath meditation you actually will manifest uh, a certain kind of feeling within your own body within your own you know breath energy if you will um and if you, at the end of the meditation you can look back and see had i not done that i would not feel this way right now i literally just created that feeling this state of being my, my life has actually changed in this in this last half hour, or hour, or 20 minutes, however long you meditated um, as a result of my intentions. And that's so simple. But it's if you can think about it in those terms, it's a big eye opener because you realize, wow, it really is true moment by moment. Whatever intentions I put into the moment are going to manifest. Now, in breath meditation, they, they tend to manifest a little bit quicker than in the grand sweeping, sweeping scheme of life uh, with all your, you know, the vicissitudes of of out, outside life and everything. But it's a, real, uh, it's a real lesson, and it's one of the key lessons of the meditation is to see how you're creating your own karma uh, every moment of every day.
2: So, I think we need to like try. Uh, actually, oh, I please. was kind of thinking of that. Does that? I mean, I'm kind of thinking like in terms of there's a as far as like the intention and the effect of karma. Um, I don't know if this is specific. I, in, I know in some Theravada traditions there's this meditation called metta, which is um, almost like the idea of sending loving kindness or good intentions out to uh, sure, out yeah. to others. And it sounds very similar, I guess. To a, there's a there's a practice in the Tibetan tradition called tonglen. Which... Yeah,
1: it's very similar to Tonglen, I would say. Yeah, yes. Keep, keep so going, it, though. Sorry.
2: No, I mean that that. So that's that seems like a very powerful example of that same kind of idea of of, of good intentions having this kind of manifestation of positive effects on your own life and your own mind and your own state. And so that's just something that came to mind for.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. But I, I also sense that DK wanted to pull us back towards the text. Am I correct, yes. DK? Let's
0: yeah, do Yeah, I mean, just because uh, I can't stay too much longer. And, yeah, 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 uh, I just yeah. yeah. To. But it doesn't, you know, in a sense, it almost doesn't even really like. I mean, I could summarize the first of all. This I want to point out. This is very traditional way of like, if you ever sit down in a proper like monastic university setting. Uh, the teacher will just kind of go on about their own thing for a long time, and then maybe get to the text in the last ten percent of whatever thing. So that's kind of traditional in a way. So whatever slash trad slash, but uh, yeah, the 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 kind of TLDR on it, I guess, is just. The um, in verse six Nagarjuna says, you know, if the action endures the time of maturation, then it would be permanent. If it is destroyed, then being destroyed, what fruit, what result will it produce? In other words, how are we going to conceptualize, like, if I have, let's say, a, a, a hateful thought? A this is why, I to kind of, do a side note thing. But again, it's a, it's all related. You know, I've said on the third rail and elsewhere. You know we we had a whole episode on forgiveness and i think it's really important and i and i got some pushback in the you know dissident right sphere um not a whole lot but some people who were saying like you know oh i'll forgive our enemies when they like stop hurting us i'm like i'm not saying to to um the point is not to to we're not forgiving them for them we're forgiving them for us and and because having a, a, a hateful moment of mind, having a hateful, harmful intent, an intent to harm, to cause suffering, that w- is something that we are going to experience negatively. That is something that we're going to experience as a negative result, as, um, as like, as our own suffering, essentially. And so th- the key point is though, that we aren't necessarily aware of, like, you know the relationship between the moment where we have a hateful intention and the moment at some point in the future where we experience the result of that as our own suffering and so the key question is what is is that action that mental action that intention to cause harm is that permanent or not right and both of these come with problems because if it's permanent then it's always there and maybe it can ne- you know it would it would never be destroyed and and maybe even never come to fruition but if it is destroyed if it's if it's only impermanent strictly impermanent in the sense that it's just you know gone um then you would never experience the results of our actions and from a buddhist perspective that's not acceptable and also just kind of in general that's clearly not how things work so the kind of TLDR on the argument in this chapter which I mean I don't know that it's necessary to really go through verse by verse is just that Nagarjuna shows how really both of these accounts don't don't really work Um, and and the, the essentially if you want to have an account where um where we're going to pay we're going to say that there are things like actions and effects and results and so on then much like we were on our prior discussions of the of the seed and the sprout i mean that's exactly the metaphor that he uses um then in the same way that there is no real sp- seed and each moment of the continuum is empty like it's not that we're saying like there's really a a uh, a function at the time and then a derivative of that function it's not like we're doing an infinitesimal t- analysis in like a mathematical sense where you know the- each individual infinitesimal moment is real that's not the case because the- each in- individual infinitesimal moment is subject to the same kind of critique as everything else. So, you know, where did it come from? Where did it go? Blah, blah, blah. You know, where I caught an eye, Joe. So like none of that, none of that works, but it nevertheless remains the case that from a certain kind of sense, we're not denigrating that quote unquote in the past with all the problems that you don't want to reify the past. There was a, a seed and quote unquote later in the future, certain without reifying that in a sense linguistically we can talk about there is a sprout that emerges in relationship upon that seed in a certain kind of continuum and that continuum is unbroken in exactly that same kind of a way the continuum of action is unbroken the the there is a continuum of mental events uh that continues and persists and and it's the it's this that is the sense in which these seed, like metaphorically you could say, eventually ripens and as a certain kind of experience. If we have a good intention, it ripens as a good experience. If we have a bad, harmful intention, it ripens as a bad experience. Um, so, in ver- like to kind of, I guess, close it in, in verse 26, he says, You hold that action is by nature defiled and the defilements are not ultimately real. If for you, Nagarjuna, the defilements are not real, how would action be ultimately real? Action and the defilements are described as conditions for the arising of the body. If action and the defilements are empty, then what is to be said of the body? Uh and, and basically, Nagarjuna replies, he says, Since the action does not exist dependent on conditions and does not exist having sprung up without dependence upon conditions, therefore the agent also does not exist. If there is neither agent nor action, how would there be the fruit born of the action? Moreover, if the fruit does not exist, how will there be its enjoyer? Just as the teacher, the Buddha, by his supernatural power fabricates a magical being that in turn fabricates yet another magical being, so with regard to the agent, which has the form of a magical being and the action that is done by it, it is like the case where a second magical being is fabricated by a magical being. Defilements, actions, and bodies, agents, and results are similar to the city of the Gandharvas. They are like a mirage, a dream. The city of the Gandharvas, this is like a sort of a these are magical creatures that are only perceptible to yogis with special abilities. The point is that, you know, all of this is, none of this is real, the way that we think of it as being real. It's all like illusions that are produced by illusions that are produced by illusions that are produced by illusions and so on. Like none of this we have this. It's a, the most fundamental, deeply ingrained tendency is to ten, is that we tend to think of things around us, our the objects of our everyday experience, as being real. And in a sense, what Nagarjuna is trying to say is that's really the heart of our problem. It's that kind of pre-theoretical. Uh, the uh, Yamnaya used the word earlier, clinging. This is a kind of almost a technical term in in Tibetan Buddhist circles. But it, but it's true. That's sort of the word that gets used, and that's sort of what it means. It, it doesn't necessarily mean it can mean clinging in the sense of you know how we are really attached to stuff in a in a kind of effective way, but really in as there's the more important sense is more subtle, and the more important sense is this very subtle clinging of like i'm looking at a pen, and I don't remember that it it's empty of the essence of a pen and that you know it's actually what you know from a certain kind of like not even the ultimate perspective just a certain kind of more intelligent perspective it's made out of atoms it's not and it's not like a gross object it's made out of particles but I don't even see the particles no part of my experience is the particles instead I'm like treating it as though it's this kind of gross mid mid mid-sized object Uh, and 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 I totally lose track of the fact that like you know, the atoms yeah. are producing yeah, right. The atoms are producing a certain kind of mental representation or cognitive image in my mind, uh and and that that's what I'm interacting with, that's what I see, like what I'm seeing is my mind in a sense in the shape or the form of the pen. Um, but I don't like think of it that way. I think of it as a real pen that exists outside my mind and is solid and stable. And you know, if I don't, if I look away then it's going to continue to be there. And, and of course I'm not saying everything is quote unquote, everything is subjective. It's not the point. The point is that we're used to thinking of things as having a certain kind of reality. And that's the root of the problem. And all this stuff about causes and effects, like if you want to produce, if you want to, um, have an account of conventional reality where, you know there are causes and effects then we have to pay attention to the ways in which the stream of action and effect is unbroken and the stream of our mental uh intentions you know like we carry within us at each moment the seeds of our prior intentions that's what shapes us that's what shapes our experience that doesn't go away but it's empty. And precisely like we've discussed again with causality I mean, it's all related, because it's empty, it's only because if it weren't empty, then it couldn't change. If it weren't empty, then it couldn't you couldn't experience the result would never come about because it would the, the, the effect would be inherently sorry, the action would be inherently the action. It would be we would not be able to, it would have the inherent nature of being what it was. it would never be able to change. it would never be able to lead to a to change into a result from an action. But it is able to change into a result because it is empty, and that's why we experience. But it's important not to reify that. Sorry, that was long. I just wanted to get that Dude, out. Dude, no, that
1: your last forty-five seconds or so there is like uh, shit, man. That's like <laughs> that, when people uh, study Nagarjuna. That that should be the the forty-five second rant that they have to listen to because that is. I, I hope so. That is. Thank you. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. Like that is exactly it. That's super clear, and it's actually for me really helpful. I'm glad. I'll add that it. that. that that, that idea, like the pen and everything, and we've talked about this a lot, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot, especially in the guardian episodes, the the chariot and the, the desk and everything. We, we've talked about all these things, the table, whatever. Um, that That is, um, for people who are interested in like Buddhist philosophy and, and sort of the, the nitty gritty of, of the Buddhist way of understanding the world, there's the idea of the five skandhas, and we don't have time to get into them all right now. We, we have to wrap things up, but.
0: The five I think we had it. Are, it was one of the episodes in this uh, in this series, I believe. Yeah, it was,
1: it. but I don't think we ever really We didn't go
0: so into so skandas. deep. That's true. We yeah. didn't go so deep. And I'm
1: not going to try to explain all five right now because <laughs> it, it's hard. But I would just suggest to people that if, if you feel like you have a pretty good grasp on the, the Four Noble Truths and and, um, and some of the other teachings of Buddhism that are, I don't know if I want to call them straightforward, but they're, they're th- these core teachings – the five skandhas are really worth looking into, and it's it's kind of hard to grasp at first because the terms that they get translated into, and frankly, I don't even know. I'm I don't I'm not a poly or Sanskrit guy, but um, I, I'm guessing that they're probably a little bit obscure even in the original languages. I mean, it's it's these are philosophical ideas essentially. But the more I've learned about them and the more I've tried to uh, interpret these ideas into my own practice and everything the more they make sense and anyway the the idea of, of thinking of a pen as a thing that exists um, even though I know on some level that it's all atoms and particles and everything that's uh, that's the this kind of perception and that is like the one one of the five basic things that make up our uh, our delusion of, of self like the, the this fact this faculty of the mind for, creating what's called perceptions is is one of the five main ways <laughs> in which in which our diluted idea of like the the, the permanent self uh, is created out of now there's there are four others and they're also extremely important but like i said we don't have time to get into all of them but that that's just a little sort of window into it, 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 it into this philosophy I guess.
0: well the first verse of the next chapter which we maybe i guess we'll cover next time or at least in the next episode in this series says if the self were the skundas it would participate in coming to be and passing away if it were something other than the skundas it would be something having the defining characteristic of a non-skunda so we can maybe dig into that um next time but uh yeah i mean it's obviously highly relevant and that's a great segue into our next our next episode
1: yeah, awesome. So, so I guess we can wrap do we have up. Any, I, yeah, uh, do we have any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I just going to say, YM, you, you haven't spoken, so I don't know if we talked over you or
2: anything. No, I, I anything. think that what DK said at the end was pretty much like a great summary for this whole chapter. And, and like you were saying, if you're going to listen to a 45-second introduction, that should probably be it. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered, sincerely. Home run, dude. Yeah, okay, cool.
0: All right. Well, uh, I uh, got to go back to Akanishta. So uh, in the meantime, <laughs> I hope everyone is having a great time. And we will catch you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you come from? Where did you
2: go? Where did you come from, I've been forgotten, I have been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from,